I don't know about you, but I love being at church, man. It's awesome. I love this church so much. My name's Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And go ahead and grab a seat for me just for a, a few minutes, if you don't mind. Take a load off. But I'm really excited to be able to be here and, and share with you guys today. You guys have heard the expression that laughter is the best medicine, I think, haven't you? You familiar with that one? Laughter is the best medicine? No, I did just a little bit of research into this this week. The theme of laughter was kind of coming up and what we were talking about. And so I thought, I've got to check this out. And it turns out that laughter is the best medicine isn't just something that we say, but there's actually a lot of science and a lot of research to back that up. The laughter is actually really good medicine. Here's some things I found out about laughter, okay? Number one, laughter can relax your entire body, all right? You know where those really good belly laughs? Those don't happen very often, do they? Maybe you're with your best friends and you're hanging out and you're having a tickle fight or something. I don't know, but like you're like laughing so hard, you get tears coming down your face. Like those kinds of good belly laughs. Now get this, they can relieve physical tension and stress and leave your muscles relaxed for up to 45 minutes after you laugh like that. Did you know that? You ever felt like that could just kind of relaxed and worn out from laughing so hard? It's a good thing, right? It can relax you if you're tense. Laughter actually can boost your immune system, okay? It actually can keep you from getting sick. It decreases stress hormones. It increases immune cells and infection-fighting antibodies, thus improving your resistance to disease, right? So laughter basically makes you Superman. Nothing bad can happen to you. A perfect immune system. And it triggers the release of endorphins, all right? So it reduces stress hormones. And if you know endorphins, those are basically our body's natural feel-good chemicals, right? It releases a whole bunch of those and promotes an overall sense of well-being and can even temporarily relieve pain, all right? Laughter can relieve pain. I know this is true because I just did it this past week with my son. You ever tried to make someone laugh when they were hurt so they'd stop thinking about how much pain they were in? I was in the mall with my kids. We were waiting on my wife who was in a store. We were out on the bench. We were playing around and, you know, I was messing with them. We were t I was tickling my son and he decided he wanted to get away from me. So he just kind of threw himself down on the floor and slipped out of my hands and smoked his face right off of the, you know, the, the tile in the middle of the mall. And I swear it echoed down the corridors and like everybody heard it. And then of course what happens as a four-year-old, he just launches into a tirade, right? He doesn't care that we're in public. He has no shame. I have lots of shame. But everybody's walking by and looking at it, giving me these judging glances, you know? So what do I do? I start tickling him even more. It's like, I got to get this kid laughing so he'll forget about this giant, massive goose egg that he's got on his forehead, right? And it worked. We've all done that with our kids. We've been there. Laughter can actually temporarily relieve pain. It's a pretty big deal, okay? And it can protect your heart, too. This one's really interesting. Laughter improves the function of blood vessels, increases blood flow, which can help protect you against a heart attack or other cardiovascular problems, okay? So when I hear that, I think, does that mean that every night before I go to bed, I can eat a giant greasy cheeseburger if I want to, but as long as I'm laughing the whole time, it kind of like cancels, cancels it out, right? Like no cholesterol and fat if you're laughing. I don't know if that's true, but I'll ask a doctor and get back to you, okay? And laughter burns calories. Now, this is a big one. We all want to burn more calories, right? And laughing actually does burn calories. It's not going to replace going to the gym for you. I'm sorry. But one study found that if you laugh for 10 to 15 minutes a day, you're going to burn about 40 calories. Did you know that? That's about the equivalent of eating one chocolate chip, I think. So it's not, it's not a ton, but here's the thing, all right? If you sort of like, you know, like put that all together over a year and add it up, you could lose three to four pounds by burning that many calories a day. So hey, you want to lose weight? You want to meet your goal weight? Just laugh 10 to 15 minutes a day and in a decade or two, boom, you're there. And you never even had to go to the gym, all right? So Laughter can burn calories. That's a good thing. It makes you less angry. Did you know that? You're in a conflict with someone. You're having a heated disagreement. If you can share a laugh about something and you can walk away laughing together, it kind of puts problems into perspective. 
And it leaves you to be able to walk away from that situation without holding on to as much bitterness or resentment. We've all been there, right? Laughter kind of like brings us together. And laughter will actually help you live longer, right? This is the last thing that I found. This is a, this is a pretty huge thing. Laughter actually extends your life. A study from Norway, all right? And I think these guys are pretty smart. They are, the, if you didn't know, the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympic champions. They had 39 medals. They, they kicked Canada's butt. They found that people with a strong sense of humor outlive people that don't laugh as much. And the difference was particularly notable for those who were battling cancer. Isn't that crazy? The laughter is actually legit actual scientific good medicine. It'll actually make you live longer. So I think that we all need to laugh a little bit more. So I'm like, man, how do I get us all laughing so you guys can at least stay alive for the rest of my sermon and we can get out of here in a decent time? So I thought we'd do a, we'd do a little exercise in laughter today at all of our campuses, East Campus, West Campus. If you're watching online, you're going to need a friend for this, but if you're online, you can do this too. I want you all to turn to your neighbor, preferably a stranger, and start tickling them, all right? <laughs> Please don't actually do that or the cops are going to come and we'll have assault charges and everything, but I mean, hey, we all laugh, laughter's good, right? It's good and it's good for us. But here's the thing. I read that and I go, well, there's different kinds of laughter too, right? There's the classic, joyful, happy laughter, but then there's things like nervous laughter too. Anybody ever done that? You ever found yourself like giggling like a schoolgirl in a really awkward situation? It's a coping mechanism, I think. There's a, there's a classic band from my childhood I used to listen to. They had a song and one of the lines in that song was, I'm the kind of guy that laughs at a funeral. Anybody here ever laughed at a funeral before? Or maybe you know someone who does? Those people are sick, aren't they? No, they're not, actually. They're not at all. They're not laughing because someone's actually deceased. Like, that, that, there's something would be wrong with them then. But it's just a coping mechanism, right? We know that laughter, it releases those endorphins, and it makes us feel better, and it relieves stress. So when we find ourselves in a stressful situation, sometimes we just start giggling, and we can't stop, and we don't really know why. It's like a natural response. So there's nervous laughter, and then there's the classic evil laughter. You've all seen that one, right? It's like standard Disney movie villain fodder, like the I'm going to take over the entire world and enslave the human race, and there's nothing anybody can do to stop me, kind of confidence evil laugh. And my kids do this one too, actually. You know, every once in a while I'll wake up and there'll be a kid standing there with a loaded Nerf gun pointed right at my face, and then <laughs> as soon as I open my eyes, the evil laughter starts because they know they have me, right? There's evil laughter. And then I think there's also a laughter of disbelief. I don't know how else to really categorize this one, but it's those moments when something so ridiculous or so extreme happens that all you can really do is just kind of shake your head and laugh. You know what I'm talking about? You've been there before? Those moments, maybe, maybe somebody just, someone showed up and said, hey, you look just like Donald Trump. Can I get your autograph? Most of us would stand back and just laugh and be like, dude, I don't know what you're on, but I'm way better looking than Donald Trump, okay? Like, clearly, I'm not Donald Trump. I find myself doing this one, the, the laughter of disbelief a lot, when I'm driving. Anybody here ever ran into someone that's got like some serious road rage? You ever done that? You know what helps those guys calm down a lot when they're spitting mad? Laughing at them. That makes them, makes them feel way better. It instantly calms them right down, okay? But, I, but so many times, like I've seen this and there's someone and they're, they're weaving a tapestry of obscenities and they're gesticulating out their window and they've got like foam coming out of their mouth like they've got rabies or something and it's just like, what is good? Like someone cut you off or inconvenienced you by like five seconds or got ahead of you in the drive through line. Is this really worth it? Who hurt you? Like, what, what, what's wrong? How can I help you? Like, those kinds of people, like, I find myself just laughing my head and shaking my head because I'm like, this is so ridiculous, isn't it? There's all kinds of different laughter, I think. And then the passage that we're going to look at today, there's a point to this. This actually gets back to the Bible, I promise, all right? The passage that we're looking at today in the series of Genesis is Genesis chapter 18. And we've been following kind of the story arc 
of this gentleman named Abraham. And I find that if you read through Abraham's life story and really through the story of a lot of these patriarchs in Genesis and fathers of our faith, but there's some real legitimate LOL moments, okay? Some laugh out loud moments. And it's interesting because these guys, these patriarchs, and Abraham in particular, they had such a unique, special, close relationship with God. Like they experienced things that that you and I have probably never experienced. They walked and talked with God and met with them face to face, and these covenants were made with them. And God spoke to them directly and just so clearly. And it's amazing that kind of relationship they had with God. But then at the same time, they were asked to believe in some pretty outlandish things, especially for their time, especially for having no context before this. They were asked to not only believe in some of these things, but they were asked to live them out in some very counterintuitive, very countercultural ways many times. And Abraham was no exception here in chapter in chapter 18. And so last week, if you were here, Pastor Don did an amazing job of, of uh, unpacking this covenant experience that Abraham had and his wife, Sarah, that basically God showed up to them and said, hey, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to covenant with you. I'm going to bind myself to you and promise to Abraham and his wife that you're going to have a son and you're going to found this amazing nation, a nation that we now know as Israel, that plays a massive theme throughout the entire Old Testament and all of Scripture and that God has pledged to, for them to be his people. But it was all going to start with Abraham and with Sarah. And God said, I'm going to make this covenant with you, and I'm going to promise it to you. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. You'll never be able to count them to be like grains of sand on the seashore. This elaborate promise. But what's crazy, and if you've grown up in church much at all, you know this, is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, weren't exactly at prime childbearing age, right? In fact, that to be delicate, you could probably say that they were well-seasoned senior citizens at this point in their life, all right? And not only were they well past childbearing age, but actually their entire lives, they'd struggled with infertility. They'd never been able to conceive a child together, even in their heyday. And now God shows up and makes his covenant and this promise and says, no, you're going to have a son. And from that son, something huge and amazing and beautiful is going to happen. And this whole nation is going to be born. And I'm going to tie myself to them and tie myself myself to you. And then to Abraham, he says all this. And Abraham, you got to believe like that that's a laugh out loud moment, right? That's a, this is ridiculous kind of moment. I can't like, how is that even going to work? kind of moment. But Abraham says, okay, you know what, God, if you want to do this, let's roll up our sleeves and let's make it happen. And Abraham is so serious about this, like Pastor Don touched on some of this last week too, but basically he commits himself and his entire family to be circumcised as a command from God so that they could be set apart and be different from the rest of the world, okay? This is, this is crazy. This is wild, all right? But Abraham says, you know what, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'm going to do it, all right? Most biblical scholars agree that this is the origin of the saying, getting some skin in the game, all right? Like, literally. It's okay. You can laugh. It's church, and it's good for you. It'll extend your life, I promise. But Abraham was 99 years old when this happened, okay? 99. And get this, his son Ishmael that he didn't have with his wife Sarah. It was a different woman. It's a long story. I don't have time to tell it all right now. But his son Ishmael was only 13 years old, all right? Can you imagine that family meeting, Abraham sits down like, all right, hey guys, God showed up and he said some awesome things and made some big promises, but there's something we got to do first. Ishmael, son, I love you, but you're not going to like this very much, right? And like him and his entire family all went through this because he chose to believe in what God was asking him, committing to this mission and this vision. And then in chapter 18, we're picking it up today. We find that just not too long after all of those kinds of occurrences that Pastor Don unpacked for us so well last week, 
that there's three visitors that show up to Abraham. In the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, they were in a desert culture, right? He was probably taking his afternoon siesta, sitting in the shade. 18 verse 1 says this, check it out. That the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up, he saw the three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree, and let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into his tent and ran to Sarah. He said, quick, get me three sayas or bags of the finest flour and knead it into Bake me some bread. And then he ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf and he gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds ugh, and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So these three visitors show up and Abraham rolls out this crazy next level red carpet kind of experience for them, okay? But what we need to know and understand is in that culture, in that day, this was a fairly typical response because in that culture, a man's reputation was basically entirely built on how he treated his guests and how he extended hospitality. So it only makes sense that Abraham would really roll out the red carpet here for these guys in this way. But Abraham was a smart guy. Abraham had had some pretty intense experiences with God leading up to this. I think that he knew and understood that these weren't just your typical road-weary travelers. This wasn't just a casual visitation, and most biblical scholars agree that this was a direct visitation from God himself. Verse 1 in chapter 18 says that the Lord showed up, right? That the Lord appeared to Abraham. This was God himself. Many people believe that this was actually an Old Testament incarnation of Jesus, long before he would show up later on in the New Testament. There's three visitors, right? Very interesting. Perhaps an homage or some symbolism to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We could geek out about this all day long, us pastors, but, but there's so much symbolism that points to this greater biblical narrative. I love that the Bible, everything points to Jesus, everything ties together, and these three visitors show up, right? And then after they have their meal and they experience all this, ex this extensive hospitality from Abraham, listen to what happens in verse 9 because the conversation takes a bit of a weird turn, all right? They say, where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him, there in the tent. He said, she's, she's baking the bread like I told her to, right? Baby's a bread, woman. I don't think Abraham was a super smart guy. I just got to say, I just got to say, if we said that today, we'd be slapped, wouldn't we? But she's in the tent making the bread, so she clearly decided to save her wrath for later. I don't know. And then verse 10 says, one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This isn't new news, remember, that they've, they've heard this before when the, when the whole covenant happened. But now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord, my husband, is old, will I now have this pleasure? This is an LOL moment. This is a shake your head and laugh at how ridiculous this statement and this promise from God is. Sarah may have been relegated over to the tent, baking bread while the men folk were doing business. I'm sorry, ladies. That was the culture back then. There's nothing I can do about it. But she was no dummy, right? You can bet that she had her ear pressed up against that tent flap and she was listening to every word. And she heard what they were saying. And I want you to hear what happens in verse 13. All right, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, remember, she's in the tent. Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. I think she probably kind of like slunk out of the tent a little bit, and she was afraid, and so she lied and said, well, I didn't, I didn't laugh. And she was probably telling the truth. She probably just laughed to herself internally. But he said, yes, you did laugh. I love that. Like, you can't hide from God. He heard the laugh. It's like, I didn't, I didn't laugh. That wasn't me. He's like, no, you did, actually. But, but it's awesome because he acknowledges the laugh. He hears the laugh. But then he, he invites Sarah to believe. There's no rebuke. There's no shame for it. And it's worth noting that in the last chapter, too, when God first showed up and made the covenant with Abraham, he had the exact same reaction. That when God said, you and your wife Sarah are going to have a son, he laughed out loud too and said, are you serious? you you got to be kidding me. Like one, I'm so old. Two, we've never been able to have kids. Like this just isn't going to happen. But God heard their laughter. And what's awesome is that he tells them, no, you want, I want you to name your kid Isaac when he's born. You know what Isaac meant in their culture in that day, in their language? He laughs, right? So God like totally, totally acknowledges and embraces that this is a ridiculous laugh out loud kind of insane moment that there's no reason that this should ever happen apart from God showing up. And I love that in verse 14, right after he's like, why did Sarah, why did Sarah laugh? Why is she, why is she finding this difficult to believe? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Why are you laughing and why are you shaking your head? Now, before we get too far down this road, like we've, we've got to put ourselves firmly in their shoes, right? If I could talk to my retirement age ladies at all of my campuses today, if God were to show up to you today and tell you that you were going to have a kid next year, all right, with your husband who, let's face it, he's no spring chicken either, right? Like that you guys are going to have a kid, what would you do? What would your reaction be? You wouldn't know whether to laugh, scream, cry, or slap somebody, would you? Like that would just, if you were honest, you'd probably do a little bit of each, right? Because it would just be so insane that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around that. And for Abraham and for his wife, Sarah, this was a huge stretch. This was a massive leap of faith. And this required them to believe in ways that they'd never believed before and called them into a huge season and moment of trust in their lives. And I, I wonder about us, right? Because we can joke about God showing us up and showing up to us and making those same kind of promises. But man, when God shows up in our life and God speaks, and God speaks promises over our own lives, do we believe it when God says it? Like, do we believe that if, if it's in God's word and if he's promised us something and he's spoken it over us or if he's commanded it, that we're just going to take it at face value and we're going to run with it and we're going to just believe it and we're going to live by it? Or are there limitations to that? It's like, yeah, man, God, you can do a lot and you can do some amazing things and I've seen you work in other people's lives, but there's got to be some limitations to that, isn't there? There's got to be some caps to what you can do or what you're going to do, what you could do, in my life. And I love something that Pastor Don said in his message last week. If you didn't hear Pastor Don's message last week, man, go back and watch it because it was so good. But he said something that I just wanted to unpack for a second. He said there's a huge difference between believing in God and believing God. And you know what's crazy is that, you know, I'm sure that at, at one of our campuses right now, and if you, even if you're watching online, there's several of us that would say, you know what, I don't, I don't believe in God. I'm just here for my wife or for my husband or for the kids. This is great for everybody else, but I'm not really sure it's for me. That's awesome. We're glad you're here. But most of us, because we're in church, would probably say, yeah, sure, I'll sign up for that. I'll check that box. I believe in God. I believe he's out there. I believe he's doing some stuff, you know? But then choosing to actually say, all right, when God speaks and God makes a promise in our life where the rubber really meets the road in this whole amazing faith journey and relationship that we're in with God, 
is that when he speaks, and he will if you give him the chance, will we trust him for what he says? Are we willing to stake our lives on that in the same way, the same manner that Abraham and his wife were? Abraham made a covenant with God. He changed his name. He got circumcised with his whole family at 99 years old. Abraham trusted God for everything. But yet in this moment when God says, you and your wife, Sarah, are going to have a son, that was like that one piece of his life where he just, he laughed. Because that was almost like, that was like one step too far. I, I can conceptualize everything else, God. I can conceptualize being the father of this incredible nation and sort of heading up this, this new movement. And I can, I, can, I can get on board with all that. But this one, this one thing, this son thing, like this, I don't know. It's just almost too far. It's, it's laughable. You can't forget that Abraham was, you know, 100 years old. Now, at this point, like he's been through a lot of major life change. We can't really blame him. But man, how often do we have issues believing God for the promises that he speaks to us in our life? Because the same promises that God has made to everyone else in Scripture also apply to us today. I think that, man, God gave an old, childless couple a son in their old age, church. And that son birthed a nation, and that nation birthed a Savior, which was God in the flesh, which was Jesus, and he saved the world. And he saved us all. It changed everything because someone chose to believe. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And if God can do all of that, then what is it in our lives? Maybe you've got something in your life that seems like a laughable moment when it comes to God. That seems like something that's just you know, too, too big or, or, or too far. Or maybe it even feels like something that's too small that God just really wouldn't care about and doesn't have time and wouldn't want to bother with. Like, What is it for you that maybe feels like that laughable moment if you feel like God wants to get involved with that? And I think that the words that the Lord spoke to Abraham and Sarah there in the desert that day apply just as much to us, to the church, and to his children today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that I can't do? And what is it that you're facing? Is it, is it an addiction? Because God wants to deliver you from that. We've seen him do it time and time again. Maybe it's an unbelieving spouse that you've, you've prayed for and just begged that God would get a hold of them and God would shake up their, their life and their heart. God is faithful. Maybe you're freaking out about, about debt. Maybe it's a financial thing for you and you've just been sort of beating your head against this wall. And do you believe that God can actually show up and move into that circumstance in your life? Is anything too hard for God? This is such an important question for all of us to ask ourselves. Because, man, like I said, those of us, we brought, a lot of us would probably sign up for the 98%, yeah, and say, sure, there's a lot of things you can do, God, but can you do this? Are you facing infertility? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it a chronic illness? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it a rebellious child? Is it like an old wound from your past that you just haven't been able to let go of, that you just haven't quite been able to get over? Maybe it's the cost of a college education and the debt you're going to have to rack up, and then what am I supposed to do with my life, and how is it supposed to turn out? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you just feel like the thing's coming off the tracks real fast and you can't quite get a handle on it. Like, can God move into that? Can God fix that? Can God redeem that? And the list could go on and on. But I mean, these are some massive issues that can cause us to basically question everything in our life, aren't they? If we're being honest, we like to be real in church. But those are the moments when asking ourselves the question, all right, is anything too hard for the Lord? When we're under stress and we're in a difficult situation, Man, that question gets a lot harder to answer, I think. But the simple laughter of Abraham and Sarah reminds us that we far too often laugh in disbelief or laugh at how ridiculous something is when really what we should be doing 
is trusting. Instead of throwing our hands up in the air, we should be putting them together in prayer and saying, okay, God, what is it that you're calling me to here? I don't know about you, but whenever I'm facing circumstances in my life that are out of my control, what I do is I focus, I I tend to, I try not to do this, but it just naturally happens for me anyway, is that I focus on my lack of strength and ability instead of focusing on God's abundance of strength and ability. And all that he's able to do in my life. And I far too often focus on, well, man, I've tried and I've tried this and I've tried that and I've done this. And maybe if I do this and maybe if I do this differently and maybe if I just make this happen. And God says, no, you're focusing on what you can't do. You need to focus on what I can do. It's one thing to believe in God, but it's a whole other thing to believe God, church, isn't it? Especially when the outlook looks grim, especially when things don't look So hopefully, you know what? I really love that later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, if you read through that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, Sarah is honored for her decision to believe, even in a laughable promise, all right? Check this out. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 11 says, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, wasn't able to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. Sarah ultimately chose to believe God for his promises. Even though it was laughable, even though it was ridiculous, she laughed, Abraham laughed, they called the kid, he laughs, okay? It was all acknowledged and it was all out there, but she was able to take God at his word and she received the fruit of that promise. She was honored later on in the New Testament. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark about a dad that I just... I just absolutely love. As a dad, he's got a son that's going through a really difficult time. He's got a son who is, who is being tortured, literally being tortured by a demon. And so he's trying to do everything he can to, to figure this out and to get his son some help. And so he reaches out to Jesus. And I love this interaction because in verse 21 of Mark chapter 9, it says that they get, they get to Jesus and they're there. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. He says his whole life, he's, he's often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us, Jesus. And I love this in verse 23 because it's that same kind of spirit from chapter 18, right? Where Jesus stops and goes, wait, if you can, if I can do something, everything is possible for one who believes. And I love the cry of this, heart, this father's heart here. This is so real. Verse 24 says, immediately the boy's father screamed, I, I, I do believe, Jesus, but help me with my unbelief. And that's us, isn't it? So many times it's like, man, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you and you're good and you're awesome. And 98% of the time, it's so easy to trust you. But this is my son. This is, this is different. This is, there's so much that's on the line. This is so huge. And this is so, this is so make or break. And in those moments, I said, like, God, I do believe you, but, but help me with my unbelief. Help me for the areas of my life and the areas of my heart where that belief just hasn't quite permeated yet, where that belief just hasn't quite moved in. And Jesus invites this man to believe for his son's healing. Spoiler alert, Jesus heals the kid and everything's changed forever, right? The Lord invites Sarah and Abraham to believe, even in their laughter. And God invites his children, invites his church, invites us to believe him for his promises today. Is anything too hard for the Lord, church? You know, Sarah had spent a lifetime. As a woman in that culture, man, if you couldn't have kids, as difficult as it is for us today, it would have been even worse back then. Basically, your entire worth as a woman would have been wrapped up in the ability to have children. And for her entire life, Sarah would have pleaded and begged and wished and dreamed to be able to have a son, to be able to have a child, and after all of those years of prayer and supplication, it was about to pay off for Sarah in this moment. And then she, but she laughs, and rather than rebuke her for that, God just gently and lovingly reminds her 
that the one who has always heard her innermost thoughts and desires is the one who's able to bring it to pass. And now Sarah was about to be able to live out this dream for the first time, but, but not in her own time, right? In God's time. When it was the perfect timing for her is when God made it happen. And then in the second half of chapter 18, as the story closes here, the Lord breaks some really difficult news to Abraham that the neighboring cities of, of Sodom and Gomorrah that many of you probably are familiar with that story, but there's basically such a level of wickedness and debauchery and, and danger to themselves and everyone around them. The Lord says that we, we've got to destroy these cities. It's going to happen. They're just going to be wiped off the face of the map. And Abraham is, is distraught by this because he's probably got friends. They're the closest cities. He's probably got friends there. He certainly has family there. We know that his nephew is there. And so he begins to just basically argue with God, to negotiate with God, to say, God, isn't there a different way? Couldn't we do this differently? Isn't there something else we could do? And he begs God to change his mind. He implores him to do it differently, to find a different way. And I think we've probably been there as well in our life, haven't we? Like when we're just pleading with God to do it differently, pleading with God for a change, pleading with God to move in, to step in, to, to, change, to change his mind even, to do it differently, to deliver us from something. And we ask ourselves that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? But what's so crucial, guys, and what's so important for us to notice, church, I think for this passage in Abraham, with Abraham here today, and for us in our own lives, we've always got to remember that God's promise precedes the pain, all right? God's promise precedes the pain that long before we found ourselves in a difficult circumstance, long before we found ourselves in a place where it was difficult to believe and difficult to trust God, God's promise was made to us. God's promise was already made to Abraham. His promise precedes the pain. And guess what? The pain doesn't negate the promise either. Just because something bad happens, it doesn't mean God's promise is any less true. C.S. Lewis said that life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but it's peace in the midst of the difficulties. I know parents who spend decades praying for their kids and just begging God to move in in their kids' lives, but some days it just feels like they're beating their heads against the wall. I know husbands that pray for their wives, and I know wives that pray for their husbands, just praying for change, praying for, just praying for a glimmer of hope, just an inch of movement. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't know, maybe... Maybe you've been praying for financial breakthrough. Maybe you've been praying for healing in your life. I don't know what it is, but God knows. And we've been praying for those things, and it just feels like, man, I'm just not sure if I can believe God for this promise in my life. And I, I heard the Lord so clearly tell me this week as I was preparing for this that there's someone listening to the sound of my voice at one of our campuses online, maybe several of us, that you're on the verge of giving up, that you've been there for a while and you've been pushing against this for a while and fighting against this for a while and trying to believe for a while, but you're just on the verge of throwing in the towel and calling it quits and God is calling you to believe him for his promises in your life. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that he can't do in your life? Because here's the thing, how we answer that question will literally shape the trajectory and the destiny of our entire life. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no, by the way, in case you're wondering. Like that, that's the answer. Like there's nothing that he can't do. There's nothing that he doesn't want to do. But you're like, there's no promise that he can't keep. Like God didn't make any promises for you and to you in this word that he's not going to keep and that he doesn't want to keep. But the question comes for us is, do we believe it? Is there any area in our life where it's like, man, God, you've got the 90, 98%, but there's like this 2% that I'm just not quite sure that I can get there? Here's the thing is that I know that God's promises are good 
and they're true, church. And God's promises are going to stand for all eternity. Let me promise you that, okay? What's really interesting is that when we put into context how long God's promises have existed, it, it kind of like changes, I don't know, at least for me, the way that I see my pain and my problems because this has been around a whole lot longer than I have. And it's been around a whole lot longer than the things that I'm dealing with and the things that I'm struggling with. Long after you and I are dead and forgotten, God's promises will still be true and they'll still be fulfilled and they'll still be good. And I don't know for you if God's maybe made a personal promise to you in your life. If he has, that's amazing. Maybe it was through his word and spending time with him. Maybe you had a dream. Maybe you had a friend who got a word from the Lord and they brought that word to you. Man, if you've, if you've had that kind of personal promise from God in your life, hang on to it. Don't ever give up on that because God doesn't make promises lightly and he always keeps his word. But man, if you haven't had that personal promise kind of experience, which will probably be most of us actually. So if you haven't, that's that's okay, but I want to invite you to turn to God's word for the promises that he's spoken over all of humanity, over every single one of us. This love letter, basically, to us as a church is full of promises for you, and full of promises over your life, full of promises over my life. His promises are plentiful, but the question is, what are we going to believe him for? Is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? I'm going to ask us to, can we stand to our feet together? Can we do that for just a moment? And I'm wrapping up here, I promise. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you tickle anybody. That's not going to happen. But what I'm going to ask us to do is just sort of do a little bit of an exercise in faith. This is just you and God. It's not going to be anything weird, I promise. But God's promises for you are so limitless and so amazing that maybe you just need to take a moment and just really focus on what those promises are and what they mean for your life. I want us just to spend a minute here at the close of this message in our time together just to let some of these promises of God wash over us and cascade over us. I don't know, maybe you want to stand there with your eyes closed. Maybe you want to hold out your hands. Maybe you just want to read these promises with me. But I'm going to read some promises over you from Scripture. And I want, if you've never done this before, if you've never really made this connection in your heart and in your mind before, that these promises are for you, that you are made in the image of God, that God is for you, that you matter to him, that he is intimately involved in the everyday details of your life, and that these promises are for you. And if you've never received them for yourself, then I want you to at least have the opportunity to do that for you today. These are God's words to you, his child, whom he loves. Romans 8, 28 says this, that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord will fight for you, Exodus 14 says. You need only be still. Isaiah 41 says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Isaiah 43 says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. 
the flames will not set you ablaze. Deuteronomy 31 says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Psalm 37 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God, we love you, Father, and you are so good to us. And we take your promises, God, and we know, we recognize some of us for the very first time that we can build our lives on these promises. God, we thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that you keep your word. We thank you that what you have promised, you will be faithful to bring to pass in our life, just like in Abraham and Sarah's life. God, we believe you today, but help us with our unbelief. Help us with those areas that we hold back. Help us with that that 2%, that 1%, those things that just, God, do you really want to do this? Is this promise really for me? Can Can this really happen? And God, when we choose to allow our faith in you to move into those areas of our life, to move into those doubts, to move into those insecurities, God, would you set people free? Would you unleash your spirit in the church, Father? God, would you see you do a new work in our midst? Would we see you do a new work in our lives? Would we see you do a new work in our families? Would we see you do a new work in our finances? Would we see you do a new work in our marriages? Would we see you do a new work in our health, Jesus? Because we chose to believe in your promises. God, promises that you already made a long time ago. But we're now coming to believe for ourselves. God, as your church, we want to be a people who believe, who believe in you and who hold nothing back. God, we ask ourselves a question, is anything too hard for you? And God, I pray that every single person, all of your children today, your church would be able to answer that question. No, there's nothing. There's nothing, God, that you haven't done, that you haven't promised, that you won't do, and you want to do for us. We love you, Father. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.